Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to uh, introduce our uh, new series and then uh, a minute or two to uh, introduce uh, this morning. You know, with Christmas comes uh, a lot of traditions, and uh, some of them are good. Uh, some of them I don't look forward to. I already, uh, you know, the tradition of overscheduling and messing up your schedule, I already uh, committed today. Uh, my last class at Corbin is on Tuesday, and I told my wife, I said, let's, let's uh, go down and, and see the kids since we're, you know, almost all the way there, and, and uh, made all these plans, and then came in this morning, and uh, Frank reminded me about the senior dinner on Tuesday night, so I already had to confess to my wife that I'd already blown it, and it's December 1st, so uh, this should keep going, right? Um, but, you know, there's so many traditions and things that we look forward to doing, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but sometimes we don't always think through them. And I want to make sure uh, this Christmas, at least from a pastoral point of view, obviously that we focus on Christ as much as we can during this time. And so we've done this in different ways. We've done uh, Advent series. We've done special different series during Christmas. And a few years ago, we did uh, one called the Christmas Playlist. And uh, we took some of the songs that we sing during Christmas time and broke down their meaning and looked through that. And so this year, we're going to kind of re, uh, revisit the Christmas playlist, but we're going to tie it into uh, our Advent uh, theme for the day. And as we were sitting down uh, talking about the different songs that we could do uh, for this and, and themes, um, Pastor Rich made a suggestion uh, of one song. And um, that's going to be the song that we're going to do today. And I would like to uh, repeat, uh, Pastor Rich <laughs> suggested the song for this morning. And he thought we should sing it. I, uh, I vetoed that idea. We're not going to sing it. Um, we're going to pick two songs for this series that we do sing in church and two songs that we don't. Uh, one song I thought nobody had ever heard of, of course, David had. So we'll see if you guys also have heard of it next Sunday. We'll do a little uh, uh, music quiz. Um, but the, the song that we're going to uh, uh, listen to this morning as I introduce it is one that you will hear probably many times if you have your TV on or Christmas music playing. Um, and it is a secular song. And uh, so if we can, if we can uh, start the song and I'll uh, give the history to it. Few songs truly embody the holiday season like Santa Claus is Coming to Town. One of the earliest non-religious holiday songs to become popular. Uh, one person wrote that one of the, the earliest non-religious holiday songs to become popular. Santa Claus is Coming to Town was, I, I assume, came with a little cartoon, but it came before that. Uh, it was written by John Frederick Coots and Haven Lipsky, uh, and it was first recorded in 1934. The song was an instant hit and has since been covered by hundreds of artists across a wide range of genres. It was covered by Justin Bieber, Bruce Springsteen, Frank Sinatra, some of you probably would have preferred that version, uh, the Pointer Sisters, Steven Tyler, Pat Boone, Michael Buble, the Crystals, and the one playing here is from Jackson 5. 
<laughs> we can click the next slide before I get in trouble. Uh, again, that was Pastor Rich's idea. Um, without getting into the Christmas debate uh, with Christians, Santa Claus, no Santa Claus, uh, as I was uh, watching a TV one day and there's all these promos for these uh, Hallmark Christmas movies that are coming on, I think they have only Christmas movies playing the entire month, which just is scary to me. Um, but one of the promos said, and I was, I was doing something else and I just heard it, I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but it just caught my, my ear. They said, we need Santa Claus to remind people that they're good. And that just kind of uh, captured me. Um, we need Santa to remind people how good they are, that they're good. Santa brings hope, right? As a little kid, when you hear that song, you start thinking of Christmas morning and the hope of gifts, or perhaps it reminds you of, of good tidings or celebrations or whatever. And the principle is that if you are good, you get a gift. The gospel is that you're not good and you get the greatest gift. And so what I want to propose today is that without Christ, there really is no hope. But with Christ, there is great hope. And I think as, I mean, I know who I'm speaking to here, and you go, of course, Dave, we, we believe that. But the problem with Christmas is sometimes we get caught up in a false hope. We want the Christ of Christmas and, and the hope that we have in salvation and heaven and all that kind of stuff, but we also get caught up in the world's view of a temporary hope that's going to make us feel good. And so we need to make sure that as we're celebrating Christmas, we realize that without Christ, there is no hope. No hope. And in Christ, there is a great hope. So we're going to look at one of the probably most known Christmas texts from Isaiah. And I want to give maybe a little bit wider picture than we're used to when we look at this text. A lot of us don't maybe read Isaiah. Maybe when we did that in our uh, our Bible reading, maybe you were kind of like, oh, this is so hard to read. And it is for a few different reasons. First of all, it's long, right? It's, it's a lot of chapters. It's hard to follow the theme. It happened over what Isaiah's ministry over a large period of time. In fact, there are some uh, modern scholars who would say that Isaiah wrote part of it and his disciples finished it, that it was, it was that long of a period of time that Isaiah wrote over and Isaiah writes in a, in a Hebrew poetry, a lot of it is in Hebrew poetry that we don't necessarily relate to. In fact, most of us would just prefer narrative or discourse because it's easier to read. But what God is doing in this great book is igniting our emotions to understand what's going on. So, I said it's Isaiah chapter 9. Let's go back a little bit into chapter 8 to try to get the feel 
of where this comes in because there's a little narrative in there or discourse that helps us understand the poetry. So if we go all the way back to chapter 8, verse 11, it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me. This is what God spoke to Isaiah. With his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. God is saying, don't don't walk in the way of, of the people of Judea and Israel. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both house of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And again, remember the time that this was written, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judea in the south, and so when he talks about Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom. When he talks about Jerusalem, he's talking about the southern kingdom, and so God is addressing both there. Verse 15, and many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be be snared and taken, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I said, the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancies and who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Merry Christmas. Wow. What a description of the people of Israel in the north and Judea in the south. So when chapter 9 starts with the word but, it gets our attention. There's going to be a contrast. But... There will be no gloom for who, uh, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought the contempt of the land of Zebulun and Nephali, but the, in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, when we read that verse in connection with chapter 8, we know what the darkness is. We've already seen the darkness, and now we see the contrast. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For you, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his soldier, uh, shoulder, the rod of his impressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every a garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we read this passage, we see in Isaiah uh, part of his writing style. Throughout the entire book, there is judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. And he goes from chapter to chapter. And it starts right at the beginning. Chapter one, judgment. Chapter two, hope. And he keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And so in our message this morning, we're going to look at three parts. Hope in difficult circumstances, hope in the change and the change to come, and hope in the character of God. Hope in difficult circumstances. I I want you to understand the setting of this Christmas passage. And we've read a little bit of, of how things were dark in Israel, but if we go back to chapter One, we can see a little bit more of the historical setting of what is happening. And Isaiah starts and he gets right into it. In fact, his calling isn't until chapter 6. But Isaiah reports beginning the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jonathan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, when you look at that, you just kind of read over that sometimes when you're doing your reading, but um, I just am fascinated by the kings of Judah, especially in their history. And as you're reading through 1 Kings, uh, at the beginning of the introduction of each king, it'll give you a little um, preview of, of, their, of their rule. And it will say of the king, uh, this king walked in the way of his father David, or, or was, did good in the sight of the Lord, um, or this king did not walk in the sight of the Lord and did evil and da-da-da, and they'll kind of do an introduction. And so when you look at the kings mentioned here, uh, Uzziah or Isaiah in 1 Kings, it says that he, he did good, except he didn't do as good as David and he didn't uh, take down the high places. The same for his son Jonathan. Now Ahaz, he was bad, but Hezekiah brings some reform. And so actually, when you look at this, from an outside perspective, it was okay times. And then verse 2, you would say, okay, you know, Israel was doing okay there. And here's what Isaiah says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have redeemed and brought up, they have rebelled against me. God doesn't seem to see it the same way. And so the setting is that God's people have rebelled or rebel against him. God's people rebel against him. And so God reminds them, these are the people that I brought out and brought into the land, and now they're rebelling. 
Why do they rebel? Verse 3, it says, my people do not understand. They don't understand. Now, that seems innocent. Well, they, they just don't understand. Somebody needs to uh, help them understand. But in verse 4, they are described, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Boy, that's not a good description. Laden with iniquity. Why don't they understand? Because they're looking through life through sinful lenses. Their life is so full of sin and iniquity that they don't get it. And that's why I said as we look at Christmas, we need to back up sometimes and make sure that we're focused on the right thing because we too sometimes have sinful eyes. Throughout Isaiah, we're going to talk about uh, looking at different false worship. I said at the beginning, this king did good, but he didn't take down the high places. Even though people were going to temple and worshiping God and singing the songs and giving their offerings and and uh, making sacrifices and doing all the different feasts, they would kind of creep out and go up to the high places and worship other gods. And so there's constant false worship. In chapter 1, verse 12, we won't read all of it, but Isaiah talks about the, uh, the vain worship that is going on. When you come and appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. And God tells Isaiah, you're going to keep preaching, and just so you know, the people's hearts are just going to keep getting harder. You know, not many of us modern pastors or missionaries have a calling so dramatic as Isaiah's. But he has this dramatic calling, and then God says, no one's going to really listen to you. Um, not the greatest job description. What a difficult ministry that he has put in. God's people rebel against him, and Isaiah is clear. Because God's people are rebelling, judgment is coming. God will judge sin. Uh, probably one of the most uh, direct calls to this. In chapter 5, it says, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. There's gonna, that's going to be the judgment. In chapter 2, God gives hope to a faithful remnant. God keeps, Isaiah keeps preaching hellfire and brimstone, you know, to put it in modern terms, and then love and mercy and hope. And I, I'm sure that it was very confusing to the people because in one sense, they're going off into exile. and Isaiah is clear on that if things don't change. In another part, in chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. That's beautiful. And so again, judgment and hope. And one of the things that that Isaiah teaches us this time of the year, and it's kind of hard for us sometimes to grab a hold of. But hope is not dependent 
on our circumstances. Hope is not dependent on our finances. Hope is not dependent on how things are right now. Hope is waiting and believing in God's Word. And if you watch the commercials, practice being a little bit of a sociologist here during the times of Christmas. Now, I've made reference to this before, and it's you know it's because struggle of my own weaknesses. Uh, the car commercials just crack me up this time of year. And um, I have to say, I mean, I, I think that I've seen it all, but uh, G, GM has outdid themselves this year. They outdid Audi this year. I couldn't believe it. And in their commercial, the wife or girlfriend, it's unclear, she comes up and she gives uh, her partner a little gift and says, I, I got something for you. I can't quite see what it is. It's some sort of, I think, one of the running watches or something like that. And he says, oh, I got something for you too. And he takes her outside, and there's two brand new cars. One for him and one for her. Wow. I mean, not just one car, but two. Who is, now, one of them is a pickup truck, and the other one's an SUV. So we're talking a Christmas gift of over $100,000, right, Ben? Easily. Now, I don't know whose budget can just go, I'm just going to go buy a couple of cars today. Somebody wrote somewhere, I'm going to misquote it, but it says these car commercials of, it just is middle class, you know, person uh, making a huge decision without the impact uh, or influence of their spouse that basically says, I got you a gift, you better go out and get a second job. Merry Christmas. Now, I don't know what your Christmas is going to look like, but I don't think there's very many of us that are going to have two brand new cars in the driveway. Our hope is not dependent on what's under the tree or parked in the parking lot. We have to recognize from a Christian point of view that our hope is only in Jesus Christ, and without Jesus Christ, there is no real hope. Second, hope in change and the change to come. If you look at chapter 9, uh, verse 2, notice the tense of the sentence. The people who walked in darkness have seen. He, he writes it almost as if it's past tense. He's basically saying, the changes, it's so sure, I'm writing about it as if it has already happened. So there's a change that is, but is also not quite yet, because the Messiah has not been born. In fact, Peter writes about how the prophets long to, to look and understand about the things that they wrote about. Because it's, it's not yet. And I would say we live in that not yet as well. We look back and we can celebrate Christ's birth, his death and resurrection, 
but we certainly haven't seen the mountain in chapter 2 that Isaiah wrote about in the nations coming to him. So we too wait in hope of his second coming. A change is coming. Uh, That's really what verse 1 is saying. A change is coming. And that change, which will bring a great light. Now just think about that concept for a minute. We, uh, at communion, turned off the lights, and we think about the lights of Christmas and focusing on the true light. Um, But the story of Scripture starts off with light. Um, I like to ask my students in Old Testament, what did God create on the first day? And uh, most, most young people will answer the earth. I say, well, there's a debate about that. What? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth were formless and void. Day one, God creates light. Now, Maybe he did all that in one day. Some believe that there was a time period between that. But on day one, God creates light. You know what wasn't created yet? The sun or the moon. Where's the light coming from? What is the light that the first day speaks of? Light is a continued theme in Scripture as opposed to darkness. Here is this light. Are they going to see the sun? Is it talking about the star of Bethlehem? I think the light is much greater than that in this passage. John seems to think it's much greater than that. There'll be a great light. Notice uh, at the end of verse 1, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. Where does Jesus' ministry come out of? The Galilees. Here's this great light. He says in verse 3, You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. This change will increase joy. Boy, if there's anything that we would love to increase right now. Right? Hope and joy. And it speaks of it as it's increasing and growing. Now, we're going to talk about joy uh, coming up as just one theme, and we're going to look at Isaiah for that as well. But here we see that uh, introduced, that there's this light is going to bring increased joy. Why are they joyful? Let's just be honest. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This light is going to bring increased prosperity in the sense of having what they need. Now, understand, I I don't want to, I'm not preaching here, please hear me, a prosperity gospel, but you can't read through Isaiah and the prophets without hearing that God promises a time of blessing to come. Now, I, I think that is yet to come, and we shouldn't look for that, but understand that it is coming. He goes on to say, uh, and verse 4 in the poetry, hard to pick up uh, or maybe harder to read, this yoke of burdens, staff of his shoulder, the rod of oppressors. 
what is he saying? That it's going to bring peace. That there's going to be a period of peace. The fulfillment of Christ, the Messiah's coming, is light and joy, prosperity and peace. And this new way of looking at life is going to bring an end to injustice. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel for the fire. In verse 4, the rod of the oppressor has been broken. He's going to bring an end to injustice. Now, when we look at the things that we get hopeful around Christmas, our favorite Christmas dessert, family coming together, um, celebrations, um, traditions, none of those things compare to a coming Messiah that brings light and joy peace, and an end to injustice. Next, we we see that this is going to bring a a unique king. He describes in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What is he saying? Uh, I mean, it's not really encouraging that you're going to have a child ruler. That's not what Isaiah is saying. He is saying there's going to be a human ruler who is also a son, and he's going to have the character of God. It's a reference to Jesus being fully man and fully God. Because you can't have a son who is wonderful, counselor, mighty, God, without a miraculous intervention from God the Father. This, is, this reads, from a Hebrew point of view, is very confusing. And yet we pick up on what is being said here. Hope is not based on God giving you all that you need today. Um, you know, God provides, God heals, God comforts. God saves, but sometimes that is not yet. That is yet to come. When we read these lists of light, joy, prosperity, peace, end to injustice, a unique king, we we recognize that we're there but not yet. And sometimes because it's still not yet, we start looking for things around us that will give us a temporal joy, a temporal peace, a temporal hope. And what I want to encourage you to do is to lift your eyes up. Lift your eyes up and keep your hope focused on a king to come. Third, our hope is in the character of God. There is some debate in this passage that uh, if there is four or five descriptions of God here, um, I will stick with four. Um, 
some uh, of your translations, I think, add an extra comma between uh, these words, some of these words, and I, I think that there is a, uh, a pairing here, and so I think we have four pairings. Uh, the first is wonderful counselor. Uh, this is description of who this king will be. Wonderful. Uh, it's more of a, of, a, of a term of extraordinary. Supernatural. Wonderful is pretty tame uh, in our vocabulary. Not here in the Hebrew. Uh, I think it's a bigger word here. It's expecting something uh, supernatural. I think the word counselor is even more confusing to us. Some of us read that and go, oh, man, I could use a good counselor. Somebody I can just go and just tell all my stuff to, and they listen to me and give me some advice. That's not what this counselor is. Um, This is really not a good word for us in our culture. Counselor here is one who plans. It's the wisdom to rule, to make decisions, to give direction. And I think wonderful counselor reminds us of his goodness. He's wonderful. He's supernatural. He's he's good. And his ability to lead. And if you separate those things, if God is good, but he doesn't have the ability to lead, that's not helpful to us. And if he's not good, and he has the ability to lead, that's not helpful to us either. But Jesus is one who is good, And he has the ability to lead. Second, he is mighty God. Again, mighty here is who he is. It's it's power, it's strength, it's the ability to act. And it is clear here that he is God. He is mighty Elohim. And, And when you look at this child, son, government, Wonderful counselor, okay, wait a second, mighty God, he is divine. And so this term reflects God's power and his position. It reflects God's power, he is mighty. But don't mistake, it reflects his position. And he is God. Now there was all sorts of gods, little g's, going on in uh, the book of Isaiah, going up on the mountain and worshiping while they're still worshiping uh, God in the temple. And and so there's this contrast of, of worshiping many gods. And so Isaiah is clear. He is the mighty God. And it brings us back into the garden of Eden and the Temptation of the serpent. Who gets to define good and evil? Whose image is going to be glorified? Who's going to be the counselor? Who's going to be the God? And we constantly want to put that back into our terms. And we're reminded God is good, He has the ability to lead, He is powerful. He has the position. That's who he is. The next two descriptions describe what he will do. He is everlasting father. For some of us, 
the term father evokes all sorts of maybe negative emotions. I hope some of you, it, it, it has a positive effect. When we look at the character of God, we've already said that he is good. And what Scripture describes of the Messiah, of our God, is that he is in this father, a good father position. And so what this describes to us is his love and his faithfulness. And by faithfulness, I mean it's a longevity. Some of you who had a loving father that may have come to an end. When we look at our heavenly father, he is both loving, good, father, and he continues. He's everlasting. It doesn't stop. There's something that is so beautiful about that right father position. And I remember as a, as a little kid, as I looked up to my grandfather, I thought he was perfect. I, I really think, I, I mean, I, I think I knew theologically that at some point in time my grandfather had done something wrong, but certainly not in my lifetime. I mean, I just thought the man was so incredible. And I remember the first time that I saw him from a little Baptist boy point of view mess up. He said a swear word. And my eyes must have been about this big around. Now, he was falling into a creek at the time, and so that was part of the whole picture of that. But it was the first spark of, man, Grandpa may not be perfect. I don't think Grandma would like to know about this. I had already heard Grandma swear, but not Grandpa. <laughs> There's something, when you look at that right father position, where you feel safe. One more story about my grandfather. I messed up one day, and I've told the story before, but I had a huge desk in my bedroom. It was, it was massive. Maybe I was just a little kid. It was huge, and it had this glass top on it that you put a bunch of pictures underneath and stuff. And I had a model working on the top of this desk, and uh, it had some spray paint for the model. Pick that out. And I had left a cap off the spray paint can. And I was doing something, and one of the papers that I was working on at this day had fallen behind the desk, and I was irritated by it. I grabbed the desk, because I had to get this paper, and I pulled it out real fast. And everything started moving in slow motion. And I can remember that can of spray paint teetering. like It was just kind of going like this. And my mind fast forward to what could happen. That could fall, and it's going to hit the tip, and it's going to spray on the wood floors, and I'm going to be in trouble. So I quickly push the desk back. And somehow, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. I caught the spray can in between the wall and the desk, which then sprayed bright blue paint all down the wall. And I quickly picked up the spray can, and I looked at that, 
And I began to cry because I thought, who is ever going to believe that? I finally got my courage together and I went in the room and confessed what happened. And I'll never forget, my grandfather looked across the room and he looked me in the eyes and he said, are you telling the truth? And I said, yes. And he said, okay. That was it. It was done. But it wasn't done. Because a couple days later, after I came home from school, I just kind of glanced at the wall as I came into my room and it had been painted. A good father, a good father loves you. A good father believes in you. A good father knows that you're going to make mistakes. A good father covers those mistakes, doesn't he? And our good father knows that we're sinful. He loves us and he believes in us and he covered our mistakes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Everlasting Father. Finally, Prince of Peace. And this reflects his continued position, Prince, and his control. Only God can bring peace. Um, This is not a political statement. But there's no amount of voting, process, procedures, things that we're ever going to do in this world that is going to bring everlasting peace apart from Jesus Christ. This hope is based on the character and plan of God. We have hope because of who he is and what he has promised to do. We're going to look at some application. I want to go a little bit slower than I normally do, so hold on just a second. A complete and lasting peace will only come through the righteous reign of the Messiah. Therefore, as we look at the holiday season, um, we really need to focus on redemption, not consumption. Um, We were uh, doing some... uh, Christmas shopping ourselves the other day, and you know we were walking through stores, and uh, it's not just the the gifts and the things. Um, there's always extra food items, isn't there? And uh, one of my uh, favorite Christmas uh, things is we make peanut brittle, and I walk by some peanut brittle and I say, "Oh, I got to make peanut brittle." That that's Christmas to me, but it's consumption. We buy a bunch of stuff, and then our kids and grandkids play with the boxes. It's consumption. We, uh, we're already aware of the sin nature of our two-year-old granddaughter. We have a little play kitchen in her room at our house, and she always takes us to it when she comes. And she was in the store the other day, and she saw something that she wanted in the store and asked Mommy if she could have it. And Jackie said, no, we're not going to buy anything for ourselves. They were there to buy a birthday present for somebody else. But this thing that she wants, she said, oh, but Grammy would like this for Christmas. She would love it. She would love it for her kitchen. Yeah, who's playing? Does she think we're playing in the kitchen when she's not there? I guess, right? 
But what is she saying? Ooh, let me give this to Grammy, and then I will get to play with it. It's consumption. And it doesn't matter whether we're two or 80. We are tempted. And so let's focus on the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ this Christmas. Let's pause this holiday season and be thankful for something that matters. Salvation. Um, in our reading this past week, as we were reading in Luke, uh, the, the 72 come back. Remember when we read that? They come back and they're like, we were casting out demons and we were doing this and healing people and it was great. Jesus says, good. Let's rejoice in that our names are, being, are written in the book of life. Wow, that was, I mean, you can almost feel it. Let's rejoice in something that matters. Let's be thankful for the Holy Spirit. Let's be thankful that we are new creations. Let's be thankful for life eternal. Let us be thankful for life abundant. Let us be thankful for life. Let's focus on redemption. And in your Christmas celebrations and your traditions, is redemption emphasized? Do people see that? You might ask this, and this might be a great family discussion, to just sit down and say, how is Christ presented in our family traditions? Remember, we were talking about the Lord's Prayer recently here. Uh, Hallowed be your name. Ask it a different way. How is Christ honored in our Christmas traditions and celebration? Don't get me wrong. There's some great family traditions, some great family foods, there's some great family practices, but how is Christ being honored? Second, let's focus on reconciliation, not compromise. Uh, what do I mean by that? We all have family issues. And... Uh, Sometimes when family gets together, we just decide it's Christmas. So let's not bring up this. And we kind of make a compromise. And look, I'm not saying have it out on Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. Although that's what all the Christmas movies are about, right? Um, but if we just compromise and put off another year, then just another year goes by without reconciliation, without real change. Maybe it's time to say, I really love you, and I would really like to see our relationship be more than just Christmas. Maybe it's time that we get some help in this relationship. Maybe it's time that we just forgive one another. We kind of go through the holiday seasons, we put on this face, and then we get to January and go, man, glad I don't have to see them for another year. And I don't think that's what Christ had in mind. In fact, Paul tells us that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. What better time to be practicing that? And third, let's focus on the eternal, not the tree. And 
I, uh, I guess there's a part of me that just can't get enough of those uh, pictures of the trees catching on fire that they do for different fire departments to remind you to water your tree. Man, those things can go up. Talk about something that's not eternal. Um, you know, we focus on so many temporary things during this time of year. The decorations, the food, the tree, um, the celebrations, the, the spirit. And they're temporary. And so how do we focus on things that are eternal, everlasting, meaningful, important, and make sure that we're actually focusing on that? In this room, there are people that will have great celebrations. There are others that this holiday season will be difficult emotionally, financially, relationally. If we're honest, there are some in this room that this might be their last Christmas. And I I don't mean that to scare anybody because... Every year, those that uh, go home to be with the Lord are usually the ones that I, shocking, wasn't expecting. We don't know the days that we have on this earth. And so there's two ways that we can approach this holiday season. I'm going to do all the things that I like to do and remember. Or I'm going to do all the things that glorify my King and my Savior that I might hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when I meet him. Let's pray. I thank you for uh, this morning, for our time of worship and focus on your word. Thank you for the hope that it brings us. Um, Lord, just a a somber look at uh, the way that we maybe encourage false hope. May the hope that we have this year be the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the only true and real hope. We pray for those this morning that this is a difficult time. And we pray that you would give them a sense of your peace and joy in their hearts. Uh, Lord, help us to be uh, gospel stewards to our family and our friends and our community in a real way. May we show hospitality. May we reach out to the hurting. May we be generous that uh, you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.